Hello, everybody. This is Kevin Witham, and welcome to Season 2 of the Common Grounds Unity Podcast. In this season, we want to focus on practical discussions about unity within the Stone Campbell movement and beyond. Jesus valued unity and prayed for it, that we may all be one so that the world may know. We believe unity is best achieved through relationships rather than beginning with disagreements over doctrine, practice, or ideology. We value the gathering, breaking bread and sharing a cup of coffee or your favorite beverage. We invite you to gather with another Christian outside your particular family of churches and tell others that unity starts with a cup of coffee. So grab a cup and let's get started with another episode of the Common Ground Unity Podcast. Welcome back to week three of our series, Lessons Learned from Mars Hill, The Stories We Tell. Today's discussion is inspired by the Mars Hill episode, Questioning the Origin Myth. And Kevin and I are excited to welcome back our panel, Alicia Crumpton, Ben Brewster, and Kevin Holland. Tina, good to be back with you. In this week's episode, we're going to talk about the centrality of story in the human experience. We're drawn to stories, and they help us make sense of our lives our culture, and our world. God, in his wisdom, has filled the pages of the Bible with story, and Jesus was the master storyteller. And yet, even in Scripture, we find charismatic leaders, kings, or others twisting the story toward their own purposes or ends. Today, we're in search of finding our place in God's story. How do we find the discernment and the wisdom to know the difference between the stories of men and the story of God? And with that, we want to set up today's conversation with a clip from Mars Hill. In this clip, we see the power of the founder's story. These stories, which are often part myth, tend to create and reinforce a sense of authority around a leader. When constantly repeated, they create a liturgy within the church culture. And we might ask, how do these stories contribute to unhealthy leadership structures at the heart of the church? Let's listen in. I want to consider the Mars Hill origin story as part of that church's liturgy. It's a statement of identity that roots the church in the calling of its pastor, a calling that comes through charismatic means. It's attractive because there's always something attractive about a quote-unquote visionary leader. You can go all the way back to 1 Samuel to see that. It's also attractive because in a secularized age where spirituality seems difficult and contested, having someone stand before us with certainty that they've heard from God in a unique way and that they know His plan for our life is comforting. But it's also a liturgy that narrows the church rather than widens it, setting Mars Hill up in competition with other churches in its city. Add to that the fact that the story, by all appearances, was manufactured, tailored, molded into something more memorable, marketable, and effective at mobilizing the church. In the end, this origin story was one of many competing for the hearts of the members of Mars Hill, and it seems that those who believed it most deeply were also the ones wounded most deeply. So it's worth taking an inventory and asking what stories are moving us. Do those stories expand our vision of Christ's church or narrow it? For pastors, then, what stories are you telling? What's the vision that you're inviting your church into? Jared Wilson often says, what you win them with is what you win them to. In other words, whatever's drawing the crowd, whether it's charisma or, as Bart Simpson once described the church, lights, smoke, and taibo, that tends to form the foundation of their faith. In this case, if you've won them to a sense of one man's charismatic calling and vision, then when that starts to crumble, the consequences, as the Mars Hill consequences were, can be tragic. So as we come out of that clip, for those of us that uh, that listen to the rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast, we all we all heard how Mark Driscoll led that church to a certain place with a very personal story that kind of gave those that were in that church a sense of God's unique anointing on him and on that church. And boy, if you were with him and with that church, you were involved in the mission and vision of God. Um, panel, help us a little bit to understand the power of story 
and human connection to stories. What are, what are the upsides and, and maybe what are the negative sides to the use of story when it comes to uh, vision in the church and direction in the church and the way leaders use it? I can offer a sort of philosophical viewpoint on stories and their importance. Uh, I should say, uh, as a true confession, I come from a family of storytellers. We love nothing more than to sit around the table and drink coffee and share stories. Um, So when I was doing my dissertation research, uh, I knew that I wanted to gather stories of women who worked in a factory, which led me to this this methodology called narrative inquiry. And as I explored the methodology, what I learned was that stories are the central way people make sense of their experiences. Um, The stories we tell move us beyond words in the way they shape our sense of reality, give us meaning and purpose. Um, Specifically, an origin story is significant in the way the story restores a sense of balance, reducing anxiety and dread. I think Mark Freeman is one of the authors that I read a great deal on the power of stories. He wrote a book called Hindsight, where he described this phenomenon called existential vertigo. I've used that word before, existential. is just things about the transcendent, things about life and death and, and things that matter to us as humans. And so existential vertigo is the sensation that we have when everything is wide open and uncertain. You know, Tillich spoke about the need for certainty and that faith provides certitude. So that's the concept that I'm thinking of there in terms of the certainty that we get from our faith that roots us in belief and gives us stability and a sense that there's something beyond us that's creating structure and and form. So stories that lessen these kinds of anxieties um, uh, address these fears directly. They're powerful stories because we latch onto them in a way that gives us um, sort of rootedness. And I think that's the power of an origin story specifically. I would agree with that. And uh, I'm reminded, of course, any book that you fall in love with or any movie that you're enthralled by, that's the central part of it is a story that you enter into and you enter in someone else's world, which and, and their story reminds you of yours. And I'm thinking about, you know, the classic Lion King and that that whole narrative and the, the, the quote, remember who you are, that sense of um, this story tells you who you are in a world where it feels like you're, you literally are one of seven and a half billion and you, you feel sort of like you're just floating with no with no tether, as it were. Um, there's a quote that I read in a, a book recently, though, that I think is telling. And I think one of the impacts of a story, I think, so the positive impact is helping you connect with where you come from. Uh, I, I liked um, the lead in where we're trying to help people and, and our actually mission statement in our churches, we want to help people find their place in God's story. And so um, I think trying to share the the gospel, the message, the entire story of salvation, creation, et cetera, and then helping people find their place in God's story rather than uh, find their story. What is your unique story in the world? And and sort of how does God fit into your story rather than how do you fit in the God story? But I read this quote from a book and it says, it's an African proverb, until the story of the hunt is told by the lion, the tale of the hunt will always glorify the hunter. So I think a downside Mm. to the story is that um, typically stories are told by those that want to shape the narrative and glorify whoever is telling it. So it's, it's always from one perspective, and it often does not bring into account a counter perspective. So that's the downside. And I think we saw that dynamic in the, uh, Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, that that podcast um, teased that out. I think, too, when you're talking like that, it gives the storyteller, in this case, Mark Driscoll, a chance to shape who everybody else is in the story. Like we talked about the way women were kind of pegged in a certain way, how men were um, 
his his origin story or the story that vision that he had for the church also prescribed what each person's place in the story was going to be or not be. You could get off the bus, the bus could run over you. You know, it was that was part of the story that that impacted people maybe without a strong awareness. You know, you just brought both of you talking reminds me of the importance of the founder. Uh, the origins, the founder is in a unique position as a storyteller because they're creating the story as they're telling it. Um, and so that has sort of a loaded suite of authority characteristics with it because, well, they like, for example, I founded the PhD program at Johnson. I can tell the story about that founding in a way that nobody else can. That's not a statement of arrogance. That's just a statement of, you know, you're you're living it and breathing it and creating it into being. And and Mr. Driscoll had a position of authority as a founder that is unique as part of this when you're considering yourself as a storyteller. Mm-hmm. I think it's a legitimate it's an, a legitimate authority as well. And like you said, if you found something, you do have a perspective that's different from others. I'm reminded of those among our fellowship who planted churches. And um, we were blessed and fortunate to be able to plant a church in 1989 in Detroit, Michigan. And I can tell you, uh, we, we, our team and I, we have a unique experience there. And, and uh, you know, uh, all you have to do is, you know, get us going. And we'll hours later, we will, you know, enlighten you with the entire story of it because it was such a remarkable point in our lives. But I, but if I think of what is the motive for telling this story? Is it, is it to glorify those that did it? it or is it to, uh, you know, uh, is it to draw people into that setting? And so I think it puts, for pastors and leaders, it really puts the onus on us to as much as possible, try to tell the story without the motive to glorify or demonize one way or the other. So tell the story warts and all, good and bad, which is a beautiful thing of the narrative in the in the scriptures, because it gives you the good, the bad, and the ugly. That kind of leads into the next question. How does the focus of the story affect the gospel we preach or teach? Me versus we versus he, God and Jesus. And what happens when we center the mission on our vision or an individual's vision rather than on Jesus? What do you all think about that? Well, I know if you think of a classic classic story or let's say a movie arc, you've got a protagonist, you've got an antagonist, you know, um, you've got someone who's the good guy, someone who's the bad guy. So you've got the hero and then you've got the enemy. And often, um, I'll, I'll just say churches I've been a part of, or even this situation, uh, and with the Mars Hill podcast, the good guys are the, the people in Mars Hill that are preaching the true gospel. The bad guys are either the, the corrupt world or, um, in some way, maybe not the bad guys, but the kind of not not the heroic ones are the churches that are not as effective, not as that don't hew to the true gospel comparatively. So you set up adversarial narratives. And uh, I think that that's what we saw. And that's what I would say to that. There's that big temptation there. Yeah. I'm wondering, you know, if we, if we talk about uh, a a strong assertion within a believer's life is I feel God called by God and a founder when they when they assert that calling um, it's already sort of an amped up charged <laughs> um, conversation because in the, in the life of believers for someone to say I feel called by God to do X then then we're already giving them so much legitimacy um, it sort of speaks, I'm sort of rattling on here because I'm just realizing how profoundly, I think of things through the lens of leadership, but how profoundly that person is imbued with power and authority and legitimacy and the necessity of accountability and sort of some checks and balances perhaps in calling. But how do we do that as believers? I have far more questions and answers, I think, about how to do that. 
yeah, our stories, um, they help shape our identity. Uh, we love stories in the South. We love to tell stories, and some of them are true. Um, but we do love to, <laughs> to tell stories. And even in our heritage in the Stone Campbell movement, stories are a big part of, of who we are. Um, you know, we tell stories about, well, here's how, here's how this movement started. And, and, and we tell stories about here's, here's where we're going. And we tell stories about who is standing up for truth. And, and we'll go back and we'll pull stories from our past to legitimize the directions that we want to go. And so we'll latch on to a personality or, and we'll, we'll say, well, you know, um, this is, this is just part of our story. And so, you know, for us, we've seen the story move from uh, what started out as a unity movement to um, this idea of precision obedience, um, that we're going to restore the New Testament church. And that drastically has altered our identity as a, as a, as a movement. Ben, from your perspective, do you, just thinking historically, do you see shifts from unity to truth? and an emphasis on hermeneutical correctness as part of legitimate authority? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, Barton Stone was incredibly unity-minded. Now, Cam- Al- Alexander Campbell was as well. Um, but the narrative that, that came out of Campbell, particularly later, was more of a restoring. Um, because there was this belief that if we restore the church, we can usher in the millennium. Um, Stone was more about bringing people together, and particularly in the second generation of leaders in the Stone-Campbell movement, uh, we see a drift from that to a focus on getting everything exactly right. And uh, probably no one symbolized that more later on uh, than um, you know preachers like Foy Wallace. And we de- we developed a very combative. Uh, militant spirit where we we went toe to toe with anyone who thought differently than us, and so for a lot of churches of Christ, our identity, whether we want to admit it or not, was founded on we're right and everyone else is wrong. What happens when you take that away? To we our identity is rooted in Christ. That's the story. Yeah, going from from unity to purity, purity tests which you can find in other disciplines, academia or politics as well, you know, litmus tests to discern how, how pure your devotion is. I wonder too, if, if when we think about John 17 unity, if you're being the arbiter of truth, excuse me, um, seems to suggest that that could be ripe for opportunity to move from dialogue to advocacy. <laughs> and dictating the truth. And I mean, there's all sorts of things that happen behavioral, behaviorally uh, relative to listening, being able to sustain alternative points of view and to hold those as equally relevant and pertinent. Uh, thank, thank you for sharing that, Ben. I think that was a really helpful framing for me to think about that there was historical shifts there to, towards truth and thinking through the implications of that seem relevant to today. Thank you so much. Well, you know, back in 1889, when Daniel Sommer convened that mass gathering of 6,000 people in Sand Creek, um, Illinois, and, and he, he gave what was called the Address and Declaration, he, he crafted a story that the rest of the movement had wandered away from truth. And so he crafted this new narrative that that we are the ones who are holding on to truth. We are the pure ones, and we must oppose those who think differently than us. That's all. That's all creating a construct through story. And then what what began as a movement of restoration and seeking to restore and discovery be, became more. Of, we've discovered it now, so now it's our job to protect it against uh, those that would question it, which is necessarily insular and counter to, you know, uh, reaching others. Uh, it's more protecting what we've discovered. Interesting. Very interesting. So, so we think about 
you know, the power of these, these stories to shape churches, to shape movements. Um, what are some of the, the guard? So, so we don't want to lose the power of story. I think we've all settled on, man, story is powerful. God, you know, brings this great story and this great vision to our lives and to our, our world. And Jesus, the great storyteller. And yet we see the inherent problems of using stories for manipulating a direction, maybe casting a vision that is more personal than, than God-shaped. Um, what are some of the guardrails that uh, you know, we as storytellers need to, need to kind of hold on to to make sure we don't lose the power of story, but that we're using story the right way? I One have thing a colleague. That I think um, comes, sorry, go ahead. No, go, go, Alicia. I was just going to say one one thing we need to acknowledge is the 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 words in Timothy that I I just want to acknowledge that the words in Timothy Timothy tell us to to guard our hearts and to that that there will be people telling stories that aren't true uh, things concepts like gaslighting and alternative facts and and things like this kind of language is is a is I think directly spoken about in Timothy in terms of there will be people that do not tell the truth. And I don't know why I feel that's important to acknowledge that just to state it, not everything we hear is truthful or of God. And I, that that's where I would start. I'm sorry, Kevin, I interrupted you. Mm -hmm. No, that was, I'm, I'm so glad that you shared that. I remember an author uh, doing a podcast and he was asked, what, what do you, what would you tell Christians in the age of all those things you talked about, there, there's just been a, and there's always been an assault on truth, you know, in the, in the human realm and human condition reminded, reminded of Pilate, you know, what is truth, John 18. So we've all, but I feel like that's the knobs have been turned to 11, at least in, in um, modern day America regarding truth decay as it were. So uh, he said, I would just tell Christians, you know, if, if we could just settle on telling the truth and loving each other with nothing else, you know, we would we would uh, do well uh, for ourselves. Just rather than what will this get me or who 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 will this uh, paint in a good or bad light? What is actually true? And so I think uh, to the guardrail question, it just makes it. To me, it makes us need to be more diligent, those of us that serve in a church leadership, to really make sure that we are, are I want to, we, we need to share what is the story from Genesis 1 on, frame everything in what we're doing currently is a part in that story that's lasted for thousands of years. And if, if, we're, if we are disciplined enough to ask people around us, hey, uh, let me know if, if you feel like I'm framing, is, is our story of our church or our small group or our parachurch effort, is it within the broader context of God's story or, or do you feel like I'm, I'm sort of emphasizing our uniqueness in it? You know, it's a, it's a balance. You, you think about the, the emphasis all through the Hebrew scriptures, tell the story to the next generation, tell the story to the next generation over and over again. So that uh, the, the the hero would be God, right? The the who he is, the the focus would be God, rather than you know who the current servant of God is in that generation. So I think that's a good guardrail to ask ourselves: Are we framing this in God's larger story? Is this excerpt that I'm sharing about uh, a part of that, or is it you know focused on how how unique we are? One of the guardrails that that goes with that then based on what you just shared, Kevin, is that you do ask someone to give you input on like there's an invitation to examine the story. And when you look at um, the in Mars Hill uh, podcast, they also refer to Willow Creek. And, you know, a lot of these, it's not just Mars Hill that has this, um, but it's where, um, the leaders insulate themselves. And I mean, even in the Mars Hill podcast, Mark Driscoll was saying, I, I can't have Tim Keller's not my peer because his church is not as big as mine. And so who, like who we surround ourselves with and the humility to 
to ask for input and to to be humble in that. How, how do you form that as a guardrail? And where are those for church leaders? Because in the Church of Christ, we, we've talked about in previous episodes, they have historically been more elder-led. So we keep well, saying like pastor or whatever, but they're are church leaders that are different than the pastor that also need that accountability. So how do, how does that get brought in as a guardrail? I think um, telling stories is a collaborative effort. And um, something that I heard a minute ago was that um, we listen to different perspectives. Um, I know within Churches of Christ, I, I can pull different history books and you would wonder if you're reading the same history because the perspectives are so slanted depending on where that person's coming from, what agenda or baggage. Because when we tell the story, we, we come with baggage and that's why it's important for us to sit down together and to talk to each other. Um, I grew up in the Acapella Churches of Christ. When I went to seminary, I went to an independent Christian church seminary. I heard a different perspective. I grew up being told David Lipscomb was a great leader. I go to seminary at a Christian church and they don't think that highly of David Lipscomb. And so you get a different perspective and you begin to craft, I think, a, a truthful story, um, as Kevin was mentioning. And, um, you know, thankfully, you know, being able to come in contact with people like Dr. James North, who recently passed away, uh, reminds us, he reminded us through story that we are brethren. And, and that's an important story. And we don't really grasp that story until we sit down at the table with people who maybe think differently than us. International Church of Christ, Christian Church, uh, Disciples of Christ, Church of Christ, you can add to that list. Mm -hmm. So so being, being willing to listen and make sure that we're not shaping a story to manipulate a set of facts, to kind of cast a vision that is our own personal ambition for a church, and we need those guardrails of hearing from others and checking our instincts by the word and, and namely God's bigger story. Is this really in the stream of God's story? For those that are listening saying, man, we are often influenced by powerful storytellers. What, what are some guardrails of discernment for the listeners? Because again, you know, God has done great things through great storytellers and through great movements, but, but how do we exercise the discernment, especially in a celebrity culture uh, where maybe uh, we're in a time when there's less trust in ecclesiastical authority or larger body authority and we're more influenced by charismatic celebrity figures? What are some principles of discernment that you all would share that have become important in your own life and in those that you pastor and care for that, that you'd, you'd offer for, for people? that are important and critical? That's a great question, Kevin. And immediately what came to mind for me was Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, because I think about, you know, here's his uh, apostle, obviously brilliant, eloquent, but compared to some of the others in Corinth in the first century, you know, uh, Greco-Roman influence, these great orators and so forth, he emphasized that though you know, in First Corinthians three, I, you know, planted, Apollos watered, but God is the one who makes things grow. So, you know, the the uh, supremacy of Christ, the supremacy of God in in our teaching as we talk about leaders. Hey, this person is a, you know, has these remarkable gifts. They have this role in our church, and we need to uh, follow and and imitate in a godly way. Christ in them and and all those things, but it always needs to be under the umbrella of who we are ultimately following. So I think always giving the primacy to Jesus to the deity, and then the leader, the personalities under under those, and even just reading those scriptures, you know, uh, I'm nothing. Paulus is nothing. You know, just these are servants that God has used for this specific role, and they do have importance in that they are uh, serving God, but we're nothing at the end of it. And uh, Jesus is the one that uh, has supremacy. But having that sort of um, flavor, I guess, 
in in our teaching and asking people to help us with that, I think is is something to keep in mind. And for the the, the Christian, what what do I hear when when I when I when I walk away from this message? What who's lifted up in my mind? Is is it is it God or is it an individual? And that 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 that's a good way to to maybe to measure. I had Mrs. Bonin. <clears throat> All through grade school, I had Mrs. Bonin as my library teacher. We had that was when we still had library, and we actually went to books on a shelf and whatnot. She taught us literacy. What does it mean to be literate? What does it mean to be a discerner, a researcher, a questioner? And why isn't biblical literacy part of what we're doing in church in some cases? I think that we really need to go back to the basics on what does it mean to be biblically literate and to be a questioner of, I mean, one of the ways that we discern is we become literate in terms of developing those practices that foster discernment. We become questioners (laughs) and we check for ourselves and I've got a little bit of a pet peeve that I would, would add into that. I, I love technology. I've, I've worked on technology projects. I really think technology, we're doing this because we have technology and the capacity to do so. But, but all of technology, we need to become very understanding of the dark side of technology and the, the ways that it can influence people that is not healthy. And there's an organization that I follow, the Center for Humane Technology, um, that has really been shaping my thinking in terms of how technology sort of becomes addicting to, to human behaviors. And I think that that's something that the church can lead in is an understanding healthy boundaries with regard to information and um, technology use, et cetera. Mm. Well, I was, I was just thinking that the idea of questioning, I think as a, a person that's part of a fellowship, if the, when you question the way that your question is received could be a way that you ha- can have discernment. So obviously, not every question that I have ever asked is a good question or like is whatever, but the spirit in which the leaders mm-hmm. in the church receive your question, I think can can be part of your discernment process. In the case at Mars Hill, it seemed like when questions were raised, they were immediately squashed. There was no discussion or facilitation of conversation. So I think in in that case, maybe that's something that that we can just look at is when we raise a question, when we invite or or when we ask for more information, how how are we received? I think a book that everybody ought to read, excuse me, is uh, Beyond Agreement. Uh, Let me see. I just had the title in my head and my brain went crazy. Beyond Agreement, Interreligious Dialogue Amid Persistent Differences by Scott Stern, Stein Kirchner. Um, Stein Kirchner's thesis is this, that people with differing worldviews will not agree. So we need to, to remove agreement as the, the, the main thing that we're looking for, but instead create a shared space within which we can understand one another. And then he gives in the book some very uh, practical um, ways to go about that and to build dialogue, build community, have a coffee together, et cetera. I think it's just one of the most powerful books I've ever read. Wow. Thinking about how do we how do we do this when we probably aren't going to agree? If hermeneutical agreement is the is what's in front of us, we're not going to agree. There's going to have to be a different sort of way of looking at it. I, I know uh, Ben Brewster, like myself, grew up in the acapella stream of the Churches of Christ. And I don't know how this uh, went in our other streams, but we were 
we were schooled in the idea of being Bereans. You know, you talked, Alicia, about biblical literacy, getting back to being discerning and knowing the word. And Kevin touched on the primacy of Jesus Christ. And and then, Tina, you touched on how are questions received. Well, I think I can speak for probably Ben and I both. We, we were schooled in a fellowship that said, in effect, you know, you, you no preacher is above being checked out. The Bereans, you know, they listened to Paul as he reasoned from the scriptures, but then they checked the scriptures daily to see if what Paul said was true. And I was always taught as a young preacher, uh, hey, preacher, don't be so high and mighty that you're above question. Um, and congregation, um, you be discerning that you be in the word and you just don't blindly follow leaders where they want you to go. I mean, if they're leading out of God's word, man, you get behind that. Let's go. But um, I, I think that's something that sometimes uh, maybe a forgotten part of our heritage that was a really healthy guard guardrail for both the people that were leading and the people that were listening. Let's shift just a little bit. And uh, we're, we're going to play a medley of four short clips from Mars Hill. And the focus here is to articulate how stories are sometimes morphed or changed or manipulated to serve the organization or charismatic leader. Sometimes pieces of truth are molded to create a marketable story that's often used to manipulate and control rather than provide honesty and, and shalom. So uh, let's listen in to these clips. If you dropped into Mars Hill Church in 2010 and asked almost anyone, how did a guy like Mark Driscoll become a pastor? There's a good chance they could have told you, almost verbatim, the story that Mark himself would have told you if you'd asked him. I was called into ministry through a prophetic word. I was praying and God spoke to me. He said, plant churches, study the Bible, marry grace, train young men. Back in episode two, we talked a bit about founders myths and how organizations often tell mythological versions of their origin stories in order to establish some big idea about their brand or about the founder themselves. Four years into planting Mars Hill, rather than opening his Bible one night and being knocked over by the book of Romans, he tells a story of conversion that took place over time where the biggest influence wasn't Paul, but Augustine's Confessions, which he read as an assignment for a class. There are other interesting discrepancies in this interview. He describes himself growing up as a good kid, well-behaved, determined, and studious, and he mentions being president of his high school class. It's far from the origin story we'd hear later of the street brawler who grew up with bullets whizzing by his head. With Staub's interview, he tells the story of becoming a pastor without hearing the audible voice of God. In this column, he tells the story of becoming a Christian without Grace Driscoll and without even the Bible that he so often referenced in his other stories. It's an argument from silence to say that the Bible wasn't there or that she played no role in all of this, but you'd also think she might have been on his mind. This was October 92. They'd gotten married just two months earlier in August. There's one other kind of funny wrinkle in this storytelling. Small enough, it almost seems like nitpicking. But it came up on Mark's Instagram on March 21st of this year when he posted a picture of himself holding a threadbare black Bible. He wrote, Some 30 years ago, my beautiful girlfriend and eventual wife gave me this Bible. It was yet another callback to his origin story as a pastor. The only trouble is, the Bible in the picture, worn out as it may be, is an English Standard Version a translation that was first published in 2001, more than a decade after Grace gave him his first Bible. That caption was later edited. Okay, well, that was a lot to take in. What what were some of your all's reflections on that? I can speak to a fellowship that I'm a part of, and I know that um, it was begun with incredible faith and daring and courage. And as, as you know, I would say practically all uh, moves, church movements begin. And then it's almost as though people were caught off guard by the success or the growth of a, a campus ministry or a young church planning. And then over time, I think that 
those that had so much invested in the success of this movement uh, felt like whatever whatever means it takes to maintain or to continue to grow what had begun or what happened the year before. How do we grow uh, more? How do we you know reach have a a greater reach? Whatever that takes is what we'll do, rather than uh, allowing the spirit to lead however he's going to lead and sort of abandon outcomes. I think getting married to outcomes and and having those as being how we measure success spiritually, then uh, we get trapped into um, using stories or manipulating stories to then motivate whoever we're leading to, to, to work hard enough to achieve the, the goals for the next season or the next, you know, uh, emphasis or effort. So I've seen that, that, that to me is the, the danger of, um, being married to the outcome and, uh, you know, not, not, uh, accepting that we're, you know, we're not in the driver's seat. The spirit is the one that's leading. Jesus is, is the one on the throne and we are, we are trying to serve them, uh, and, and not our own story. I've been thinking about Revelations 2, where the writer says, you have lost your first love. And um, in considering that, I went back and reread a book that I read years ago as a grad student by Berger and Luckman called The Social Construction of Everyday Reality. And I, I haven't finished processing all my thoughts relative to that scripture, so I'll say that in advance. But one of the things that Berger and Luckman highlighted for me was how, as social groups, we come together. The, the most generative time is when we're starting something because it's new, it's fresh, we're creating, um, we're, we're most closely to the ideal that we imagined uh, that prompted our creation. But over time, as humans, what, what they say is that we start to, um, to put in structures and start protecting and defending the way things are. They use the term reification, which when I looked it up, all it really means is things become concrete-like and highly resistant to change. And so I've been thinking about that in terms of, is that what the author means by we've lost our first love? We've lost that. And then I would love to hear Ben's ideas on what that kind of speaks to in terms of our history within the restoration movement, Stone Campbell movement, just what his thoughts are historically. I think that's a great point, uh, Alicia. Um, and, and you know, I look at Revelation too, and I, you know, losing brotherly love for each other, right? By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Uh, Jesus said that. Um, but throughout our history in the Stone Campbell movement, um, uh, we have forgotten uh, chunks of our story. Um, we've forgotten that we're not the first ones to launch a reformation. Um, that's been done by others who've come before us throughout history. Um, we've forgotten that, that what made our movement unique was that we held unity and uh, the restoration of what we call New Testament Christianity on an equal plane. And that, that's one thing that separates the Stone Campbell movement from every other reform movement throughout history. Um, but we've We've reconstruct. We've we, we've forgotten our history, our stories, and so uh, we think, well, we've always done it this way. I remember hearing as a kid in, in the Church of Christ, well, this is exactly the way the first century church did it. Well, when you start digging into the story, that's just not correct. It, it, it's not, and uh, but we construct a story, we maintain a narrative. We kind of become territorial. We try to protect what we have, like we have to protect it. And um, and that leads to um, a history of division. You know, what was the thing that 
Austin McGarry said when he started the uh, firm foundation. Uh, that first issue on the first on the front page, he assaulted David Lipscomb in the Gospel Advocate, and he accused Lipscomb of wandering away from the truth. And throughout our history, we've seen these narratives be be constructed um, to try to legitimize why we do the hurtful, harmful things that we do. How did we lose sight? I mean, I know this is a question without an answer, but how did we lose sight of grace and compassion with regard to fellow believers? Are there historical like moments, things that happen, revivals, or, or it, I, I'm putting on the spot, I realize, but I'm just so curious. How did we lose it? <laughs> I think we've always had it, but those voices were drowned out by other voices. Maybe we could, uh, you know, as we're thinking about us and we're talking a little bit about our history and maybe each of our streams, what are some of the specific stories that have influenced and shaped our heritage or our specific tribes? I, I think of, you know, the Stone Campbell Restoration Movement as a whole. Um, I think of, uh, of a story I heard throughout my life growing up in the church that, uh, you know, there was the great falling away, and the church went into this period of great apostasy. And, and then, you know, there were those who, who saw the need to go back to the Bible and restore the primitive church and, and return, you know, not to uh, Reformation history or anything more modern than Jerusalem and, and to restore that which was totally lost. And, you know, as a part of the story, almost this sense that there was no true church, maybe a, maybe a little pure stream that you can find in some minor movements until the restoration movement came about. And that story is powerful in, in shaping, you know, my view of being in this restored church and our mission to keep, uh, you know, re restoring and returning and bringing others into it. Now, I still am a great lover of the idea of restoration and still love the movement, but that was a powerful story that shaped my identity within it. Yeah, Kevin Witham, I, I think you've said this before, uh, the old joke uh, of some of the mindsets that we've had, um, that the Apostle John died and Alexander Campbell was born. And <laughs> everything that happened in between doesn't matter. But it even goes deeper than that. I remember teaching a class one time on the, the restoration movement, Stone Campbell movement. And afterwards, someone walked up to me and said, why are we even talking about this in church? This doesn't matter. I'm a part of the first century church found in the book of Acts. This, this history doesn't matter to me. And so in some ways, we have um, we've shrugged off our stories, our history, um, and except when there's parts that we like. I remember growing up hearing the story of um, the, the church in Midway, Kentucky, the first church in the restoration movement that brought in an, an organ. It was actually called a melodeon, very small. It's actually on display there at the college. And the story of L.L. Uh, Pinkerton, uh, the preacher, bringing that in because the singing was so bad. He couldn't, he couldn't deal with it any longer. And how, how one night one of the elders went with, um, with his slave, and, and they went inside, and they took the melodeon out, and they destroyed it. And that was almost like a badge of honor for us in Acapella Churches of Christ. See, see, we're right in how we believe. See that, and, and we do that throughout our 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 history and our stories. We we pick and choose the parts that we like, and we ignore uh, the other parts. Which, which that's one of the great dangers of story picking, picking the the facts we like, and maybe ignoring the others or slanting it to make our view of it look favorable. What else, panel? Yeah, well, I have to say this. Yeah, it's um, there are so many these origin stories. It's it's as though one movement uh, feels like, hey, there's never been anything like us, and then then that that DNA gets into us, and then it's radicalized or it morphs with the um, succeeding generations. I know I came into the campus ministry movement stream in the uh, late '70s. And that morphed into the discipling movement and then the Boston movement and then the ICLC 
movement. And um, it was in large part, I think, a great pure faith, the desire to reach people beginning with uh, college students and then in urban centers and then uh, worldwide um, outreach and helping uh, as many people as possible around the world know Jesus. But there was this, uh, there began to be a comparison, sort of we're, we're the ones that are doing it the right way compared to those from whom we've come that are dead or that are not as uh, devoted or committed. The, the, the more One of the buzzwords in the late 70s, early 80s was the totally committed group. And by inference, you know, uh, implication rather, others were less committed. So, you know, there's those, that, that's the danger there where you, you begin to uh, compare and uh, you, you glorify what you're doing. And also, I just think it's lack of perspective. You know, uh, many of us were really young during that time. And we all know, you know, any time in our lives, but particularly when we're younger, not knowing the context of history, it's as though no one has ever done anything, <laughs> you know, uh, for God before us. <laughs> I, I I do have to say it was jarring hearing Ben share about, I think it was Lattimore. I'm not, I'm not sure who, but the, the guy that took the melodeon out of the church, it was this guy and his slave. And so it just, it, it just made me think about, so uh, not even touching that area of you had uh, you know, the founding members of the stone Campbell movement and some were pro-slave, some anti-slave, that whole other, you know, how, how that affects Christianity and the uh, recognizing the Imago Day and every human being. That's a whole nother thing that I could go down another rabbit hole there. But I would just say that, uh, you know, it's um, we run into that danger of thinking, you know, no one has ever done what we've done. And I know there was a time where <laughs> we compared ourselves to the, you know, the, Re the Reformation movement in the, uh, you know, uh, 16th century, 15th, 16th century. Like, you know, we've our scope is broader than than theirs was. And so anyway, it's, uh, it's unfortunate, but we're trying to learn from our grandiosity and our mistakes. Isn't it interesting that we always are the good guys in our story? <laughs> we're always the really is. Yeah. Yep, really is. So how do we reclaim our whole story? How do we move into really seeing um our history for for all that it is and moving forward with the with finding our first love again and and moving into this next chapter for the church i think it, it could start with just being okay with or comfortable with the fact that you know two things can be true at once you know multiple things can be true and just as, as like with a physical family, your family of origin, you, you know, there's nothing like it. You wouldn't be here without it. It's, it has shaped who you are. It, you, you, uh, you have its DNA and there are things that you thank God for. And there, you know, um, other traits, either physical traits or, or habits that, you know, you would opt not to have if you could, but that, that's part of, you know, it, there's there's uh, the beauty and also the complication of being in a family. So I just think making, giving permission, maybe it's okay to have great and not so great parts of who we are. And, and one, the existence of one doesn't invalidate the other. And it's not as though God hasn't worked through the broken as well as the, um, you know, as well as the noble. So I, I think even just starting there, like that's okay. In fact, there is no story that's all good. And even, you know, reminding ourselves that if I, if I hear something that's too good to be true, then that means it's not true, you know, and, and giving permission. And as well, I think something that many, uh, you know, the Gen Xers or um, baby boomers were thinking is let, let's give the next generation a foundation where they can they can shed some, some things, you know, and, and not try not to give them our baggage. I mean, in some ways you, you're going to just because they're from you. On the other hand, at least you can be transparent about it 
to so that so that there's a chance for them to or, or not even a chance of hey guys please you know keep the keep the fish throughout the bones uh hopefully you will will hold on to the heart of trying to love god and imitate jesus and listen to the spirit but you know uh shed some of these these other things that, that aren't helpful so thinking about the next gen definitely should should motivate us um, i'm almost embarrassed to say that um <laughs> you know i've spent the last 20 years thinking about leadership and developing leaders but I think we need to, to de-emphasize leadership and re-emphasize discipleship and biblical literacy, teaching people to, to be disciples, teaching them to grow in their faith and what that looks like. Um, I have a lot of respect for leadership, but I, I think not in all cases, but in some cases that has become the thing we have lost our first love. And it's really all about glorifying God and growing in our relationship with him. And that needs to be our emphasis. It's telling that you said that, Listen, so uh, because as I'm thinking about it, some of the more prominent pastors in uh, that, that I have learned from, I think they're uh, men of God and women of God, but have you seen of late or yeah past decade or two them having a pastorate but also a part of it is their leadership coaches leadership development you know leadership training and it's almost like they're 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 wearing two hats with equal enthusiasm as though and of course we know leadership is indispensable we, we all know that but mm -hmm. it does blur it to where you know, are we are we emphasizing how to be a better leader, or are we emphasizing how to be a better Jesus follower? Um, so I I would echo what you said. It's uh, well said. The, the, Paul said it well. Imitate me as as I imitate Christ. You know, all, all was taking it back to Jesus and get, mm -hmm. getting us back to Him and not drawing it to ourselves. Ben, were you about to say something and I yeah. cut you off? I was just thinking, um, Kevin, one of the things I, I love about our heritage and I love about the Churches of Christ that I grew up in was this emphasis on humility and service. Um, and, and I thought everyone believed that way. And it's surprising when you realize there are people that may think differently. But um, it, I kept thinking about something that John the Baptist said when he gets reports that Jesus is teaching and all these people are being baptized and everyone's going over to him, you know, and John had that, he, he said, he must increase, I must decrease. And I think that's a goal for all of us as leaders in the church, that we must decrease and Christ must increase. That's cool. Well, folks, I, I think that's probably a good closing point for our discussion. I, I hope our our listeners have been, been moved to think about the power of story, but telling that story with good guardrails to make sure there's not too much of us in it and not more of God and his story, and that our stories are just bringing us into his. Um, what a great conversation. Can't tell you how much I've appreciated uh, this and our series up to now. Tina, we're coming back with another uh, podcast uh, another section of this conversation next week. It's been good to be with you. Why don't you close us out today? All right. Thanks to our panel. And next week, we're going to be talking about the cost of speaking up. And I think in that conversation, we might also talk about the cost of not speaking up. So join us next week. Thanks so much for being with us. And remember, unity starts with a cup of coffee. Thank you for listening to the Common Grounds Unity podcast. Please check out commongroundsunity.org to learn more about who we are. You can subscribe to the essays, join our Facebook group, or find our YouTube channel. And please check out the gatherings page where you can connect with other unity-minded Christians in your area. 
If you can't find a gathering in your area, we can help you start one. It's not difficult or time-consuming, and we'll help you out along the way. It really does simply start with a cup of coffee. If you want to volunteer or ask questions, please email john at commongroundsunity.org. And lastly, we need your help by donating to this ministry of reconciliation. Your donation is tax-deductible. Links for donating are in the show notes or on our website. Until next time, God bless, and remember, unity starts with a cup of coffee.